Well, good morning and welcome. Good to see you all here today and Merry Christmas to you. If you're visiting with us today, there's a card in the foyer called a Connect card. We'd love to know of your attendance with us and ways that we can connect uh, with you uh, this uh, this week or this uh, the next weeks to come. I want to thank those who were involved in the Living Nativity this past weekend, Rachel Hager and uh, all her helpers. Uh, they did a great job. We had a number of students and uh, other adults who helped out uh, to make that thing go. And it was uh, we learned a lot this year, kind of some things that maybe we do a little bit different next time. But uh, thankful for those who came out to support uh, those uh, the efforts there. And uh, we had some people from the community as well, not from our church, I should say. So that, that's good, too. And uh, we're thankful uh, for those opportunities to celebrate the birth of Jesus uh, with our community. Uh, this week, we have a Christmas Eve service on Thursday uh, at 5 p.m. That'll be in this room here. And we look forward to, again, celebrating together on the eve of uh, the remembering the birth of Christ. Next Sunday, uh, December 27th, uh, we're only going to have one service. There'll be no Sunday school. There'll be one uh, 11 a.m. service. So that'll be all that will be happening. <laughs> yes, sir. That is all that will be happening that uh, that day is the 11 a.m. Uh, service. Uh, also in the foyer, there is a Christmas tree. And on the Christmas tree, there are some tags uh, labeled of things that you can purchase in order to uh, help uh, prepare a care package for our college students. If you'd like to do that, go ahead and grab one of those tags or more than one if you'd like. And then uh, bring that back with the gift. I think it says early in uh, 2021, so within uh, maybe January, can get that back to to us here, and we'll get those packages packed up. Uh, before we uh, continue together in uh, worship through song, I want to let you uh, know a prayer request. Uh, last night, some of you may have got the email that was sent out that Jerry Ferris had been in the hospital uh, all of last week, and uh, the past few days had started to uh, decline. Uh, the family was called in. They didn't think that he would make it through the night and he did not make it through the night uh, shortly after shortly after uh, the the email went out uh, Jerry actually went to be with the Lord and so I'll be praying for for Pat and for Ray and uh, his other children uh, Jerry's other children and the family uh, during this time obviously a difficult time to lose a loved one um, uh, always difficult, especially this time of year. And so just be in prayer for them. We're thankful uh, for the hope of heaven. We're thankful for Jerry's faith in Jesus, which uh, assures us that there is more to life than than this and that he is safe and he is home. And so whereas we uh, weep with those who weep, as we should, we also rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can believe that Jerry is rejoicing in the presence of God. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we rejoice with him uh, while we continue to pray for the family. So as we begin, would you stand with me as we uh, begin our service with prayer and asking God's blessing on the Ferris family and then uh, singing together. God, we are, are thankful uh, this morning uh, that we have a, a hope that outlasts this life. Uh, Paul says, if in this life only uh, we have hope, that we are of all men most to be pitied. God, uh, we're thankful 
uh, that, that uh, our hope is not just for this life, but it is in uh, the life to come. And that is not only because of the birth of Christ, not only the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ, which assures us of our resurrection, uh, those who believe resurrection to life eternal with you. And so, God, we look forward to, to that day. And we look forward uh, to one day seeing you, seeing loved ones who know you, who have gone before, loved ones like Jerry. And so, God, we pray for your grace for um, the Ferris family as they grieve. Thank you again for hope. But Lord, we pray that your spirit will comfort them in their grief. God, there are others who are grieving uh, this season as well over the loss of loved ones this year and in the years past. And we recognize the, the difficulty of uh, these times of year, this time of year uh, with the, 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 the loss of loved ones and the loss of friends. And so Father, we're asking that your spirit would draw near. We're asking that the, the joy of Christmas would not be found in, uh, in the things that we have, but in the person, in the work of Jesus. And so God, would you do that? We pray. Would you bless our time now this morning as we worship, worshiping through song and through the scriptures. We pray that you'll receive the glory in all of this. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. If you raise uh, this past week, my sister who lives in Michigan sent me, uh, our family, a picture and uh, the picture was uh, from our hometown. <clears throat> and our hometown, it was in Maryland. My hometown was in Maryland. And, um, and it's, uh, the, they got snow last week. And so the snow is uh, gently uh, laying across the town. It looks so, so beautiful. Right? So, uh, so beautiful. It brings back such memories for me of uh, childhood in, in Maryland. And the excitement of winter, we always had pretty exciting winters there. It was in Western Maryland, right in the kind of the mountains area. So we uh, would get quite a bit of snow. And uh, in this time of year, it certainly brings back those feelings of anticipating, anticipating Christmas, anticipating all that that involves. And maybe you can, maybe you can relate a little bit. Maybe you can uh, relate or even just remember uh, those feelings, uh, feelings of anticipation, uh, whether it was for Christmas or, or maybe even it's, it's something else for you that you remember anticipating. Uh, maybe for some of us, it's a longing for um, a vacation. Maybe your anticipation is uh, waiting to get off of work. Uh, maybe it is graduation uh, for some of you. Maybe it is uh, finally getting your driver's license if you're a young person. Maybe some of you remember looking forward to a, your wedding day or expecting your first child or envisioning your next career move or, or retirement, uh, hoping for a, for a snow day off from school, uh, waiting, waiting the arrival of, of family, that anticipation of family coming home, which uh, some of us might not experience quite the same way this year. But you remember that, that arrival, that arrival of family, or for others, it's the arrival of a, an important package from Amazon. Yeah, that's, that's exciting, too. Uh, maybe it's, it's anxiously waiting, right? That anxious awaiting of Christmas morning that we remember feeling for years and years as a young person. Well, Advent is a time of anticipation. It is a time of expectation, expecting God's provision, provision of his son, the Messiah. Uh, for the past two weeks, we have sought to tell what we've been saying, the whole story of Advent, right? And we began in the beginning uh, in Genesis, where we, we learned about the, the problem, our problem, our sin problem. And in Genesis chapter three, we saw how Satan tempted Eve and Adam and they fell. 
This was the first great conspiracy theory, if you will. Uh, the, an alternative. It was an alternative to reality. It was an alternative to, to the actual truth, to the actual plan of God. There was a conspiracy uh, told to Adam and Eve, uh, a lie meant to deceive, a lie meant to disrupt and create unrest. And quite frankly, mankind has been and continues to be susceptible to these kind of uh, temptations. It started in the garden, it continues today, and we must be on guard against such trickery of the devil. We must guard ourselves, we must test the spirits, as First John 4 verse 1 says, which means to discern truth from error, to know what is true, to know what is from God, to know what is not from God. We have a problem, it's a sin problem, and it began in the garden. And as we read our Bible, we come to know that, that God is truth, um, and his, that, and that in his, his truth, in his plan, he was committed to our redemption. And as we read through the Bible, we find out that there are promises, and we talked about those last week, promises of what God was going to do, promises of this Redeemer that would come, of this Savior. And now we come, we come to that long-awaited provision, the provision of the promise for our problem. And guess what? The provision has come, right? We're talking about it as though it's being promised prophesied and though it is yet to come, but we know this side of the cross, it has come. Jesus already has come. We, we remember this time of year, his coming, not as though he is coming again in the same way, yet he, we know he is coming in the future once again. But the Bible does tell us that he has come. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. He has come. He did come. And in Galatians chapter four, if you have a Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 974. 974. The Apostle Paul writes this beginning chapter four in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In these verses, we can see four things about the provision. Uh, Warren Wearsby summarizes this with, with four questions. So we'll use his, his words here. Why he came, who came, how he came, and why he came. We see all of those in just these verses. First, when? When did he come? When the fullness of time had come. After hundreds of years, right, since the prophecy, last week we said that, that Isaiah prophecies were 700 plus years before Jesus would be born. And after that many years, in thousands, right, if you go all the way back to, to Genesis, the, the promise was fulfilled. So when the fullness of time had come, or we could say when the time was right, God sent his son. The son was revealed. The redemptive narrative that began in the Old Testament is moving into its next chapter. That's what Paul is saying. And the kingdom of God is being inaugurated and the good news, the gospel would be proclaimed. That's what Christmas is telling us. In fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter one, verse 15, he says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
the coming of Jesus meant that the kingdom was coming, not in full, that's yet to come, but he was establishing it and that um, we were to preach the gospel, to repent and believe it. So God was sovereignly at work in the world to bring about his plan of salvation at the fullness of time, when things were right, when things were the way they were meant to be, when things uh, were like uh, at that time, through things like at that time, uh, Roman rule. So at that point in time, Rome had basically conquered the inhabited earth. And in doing that, they also made roadways. And these roadways were built by Rome and enabled travel around the world. The Greek culture and language had unified and gave cohesion to society. And the Hebrew people had been dispersed. So all these things facilitated the rapid spread of the gospel once Jesus had come. So God was not waiting. When, when, when we read that in the fullness of time, uh, and that's not saying that God was somehow waiting around for things to get right in order for Jesus to come. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that God was working all of those things together for the right time. One commentator reminds us, God does nothing prematurely. God does nothing prematurely. It was true then, and it's true today. We, we've talked about this before, but we want things now, don't we? And yet God, God has a, a, a bigger view. He's playing the long game here. He's playing the long game in our life as he played the long game here in the scriptures. The promise of the offspring of Genesis 3, the promise of the son that would be given Isaiah 6, came true at Christmas in Jesus at the fullness of time. What? God sent forth his son. Who did he send forth? His son. The provision was the son of God, Jesus. This tells us two things. Jesus was sent from God. Jesus was sent from God. Jesus was with God. Jesus was in the beginning and Jesus was sent. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 20, verse 21, when he says, as the father sent me, so send I you. Jesus knew that he was sent. Paul knew that Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent from the Father. Um, C.H. Spurgeon has called this the divine interposition or the intervention, the injection into the world that, that God sent his son. This is uh, John 1:14. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us. God came to man. Jesus was sent from God. And secondly, Jesus is God. God sent forth his son. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. This is John 1. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus being God is vital because only, only the righteous could die for the unrighteous. That's the, the only way that the, the, the sacrifice would work. It's only the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin, 1 John 1, 7. It's only the, the unblemished offering, Hebrews 9, 14 says, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here we see once again, 
as we did last week in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the fun fundamental truth that Jesus, this son who was given, is God, but also that the, that the child would be born. We see that in the next phrase. Look at it. For, for God sent forth his son, what? Born of a woman. We're seeing both here, aren't we? This doctrine cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated that firstly, that Jesus is God. In Luke's genealogy, Luke chapter 3, Matthew has a genealogy and Luke has a genealogy. They're the only two that give the genealogies of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 3, um, there's a, a genealogy, a longer genealogy actually than... Than Matthews, but he details the lineage of Jesus from Joseph. And he goes all the way back to the Son of God. And so what Luke is saying there is he's saying that this Messiah is the Son of God and he is the Son of Joseph. He's telling us two things. He's telling us the two things we looked at last week in Isaiah 9, the same two things that Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 4, that Jesus was both God and man, which leads us, as I said, to the next part of the verse. How was this son born? Born of woman, born under the law. Born of woman, born under the law. So first born of woman, which means he's human. Right? Uh, Jesus is speaking, or Paul here is speaking of Jesus's miraculous birth, born of a woman, that he is uh, the incarnate God, right? He's God in flesh. He's God come to man. Elsewhere, Paul writes this, Philippians chapter two, uh, the, the, the commonly known passage uh, you've, you've heard, but let, let, hear it again. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, he being found in human form, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is human. Jesus was born as a baby. He took on the form of a serpent, servant. He took on human form. Which means that he, that he lived a life as a human. He, he experienced the things that you experience and I experience. He experienced emotion. He experienced tiredness. He experienced thirst and hunger. He experienced joy and sadness. He experienced anger, righteous anger. He experienced those, those, all those emotions. And he even experienced death. Death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, became man to die. Consider, consider the significance of that. Hear it again, that God became man. Deity in humanity. That might be something we hear often, and maybe the frequency of it or the familiarity of it has caused us to not grasp it or not see the weight of it. But the Son of God, in order to become man, would have to leave heaven for earth. He gave up his exalted position for a human body. 
we struggle to give up a lot of our freedoms, right? For any other purpose, for any good, for any, anyone else. We want what's ours. Here, Jesus gives up his eternal and exalted position. He, was, he who is righteous and is eternal willfully, willfully, the son willfully suffered and died. Not for his crimes, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. He gave up unity with the Father to come for us. What in the world? What in the world? We, we, we can't imagine quite that, right? We, we read the parable of, of, of the Good Samaritan and the Levite and the priest, they wouldn't even go across the street. They wouldn't even help this, this, this man dying on the, the ground. They, they wouldn't go out of their way for him. Here, Jesus leaves everything to come for us. Jesus is the God-man. He was born of woman. And secondly, he was born under the law. Being born under the law means that Jesus was born Jewish. Means that he was under the Jewish law. So he would have to obey the Jewish law. But in Matthew chapter 5, we learn that Jesus came not to abolish the law. Sometimes we talk about the law and grace. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled the law by obeying the law perfectly. He fulfilled all of it. He did everything right. He did everything righteously. He was holy. And this son who was given was righteous as his as being righteous because he was righteous because he was the God man. Uh, John Stott says it this way that he was uniquely qualified, uniquely qualified to be our redeemer. No one else could do that. No one else could be those things. No one else would be those things. You see, by fulfilling the law perfectly, Jesus was sinless and therefore ex the, the acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He did what no one else could do. What did he actually do? He came, he was born, and then verse 5 tells us why he came and was born to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. First, he came to redeem. Uh, to redeem means to, um, to pay, uh, set free by paying a price or to ransom or to buy back. One commentator says that a man could purchase a slave in any Roman city. And there were some 60 million slaves in that empire. And either they could keep the slave for themselves or they could set the slave free. This picture here of Jesus in, in setting us free, redeeming us, is setting us free from the law and making us sons and not slaves. Jesus came to redeem. Jesus is the redeemer. He is the one who, who rescues us. But maybe you're wondering, why do we need a redeemer? Maybe some people don't think they need a redeemer. Maybe they think that the Jesus was coming for a problem that they don't have. 
Maybe they think that maybe, maybe someone else needs to be redeemed, but I'm doing just fine. Well, the whole story, right? And that's why we started at the beginning two weeks ago. The whole story tells us, in fact, we all are in need. We all have a problem. We all, in fact, do need a redeemer. We all have a sin problem that we cannot fix. He, here's our reality. We are under the law of God. You are under the law of God. If you do not fulfill the law of God, there is a penalty for that. James says that if we fulfill the whole law, yet fail in one, one way, if we mess up in one way, if we sin in one way, we're guilty of breaking all of it. So what does that mean? It means that, that we are all sinners. And the penalty of that sin is death. Ephesians 2 tells us that we can do nothing about it. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. D dead people cannot do anything for themselves. That's the point of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. You can't do it. Salvation can never be of you. You can't do it. Something has to happen before you can even respond. Something has to happen in you. And that's why Paul says he made us alive together with him in Christ. God moved first. And the first move was sending Jesus to come to earth to provide the sacrifice for our sins, to be our redeemer. The good news is that Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. We don't use that word lawless as much, right? But the idea of lawlessness is that, that we're a sinner. We're breaking the law. We're doing wrong. We're unrighteous. And Jesus came to redeem us from our lawlessness. Even Zechariah understood this in his prophecy upon hearing about Mary being pregnant. He says this, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Jesus wasn't even born yet. And Zechariah is already prophesying as though it's happened. That's how sure he was of God's promises. Titus 3, 5 tells us that we are saved not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So how exactly, though, did Jesus redeem us? Yes, he came to redeem us, but how did he actually do that? Well, you're in Galatians chapter 4. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 3, if you're using a pew Bible, it's just the next page back. And look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Paul writes this. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on, is hanged on a tree. Jesus took upon himself our sin. He died for our sin. How did he redeem us? By dying the death that we deserve, that our, our sin deserved. He died that death. Jesus redeems us by being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Our substitutionary atonement, we could say. The one who died in our place for our sins. The son was born to fulfill the law, born to save, born to die, born to set us free or redeem us. 
But secondly, we see here in verse 5 that he was born to adopt us. The rest of verse 5 says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All of verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son to make us sons. God sent his son to make us children, to adopt us into his family. First John tells us a little bit about the family of God when John writes this, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who were born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The way that we're redeemed is through the work of Jesus. The way that we are adopted is through the work of God. God has so, so saw fit to make us children, to make us sons through his son. He came to redeem. He came to adopt. But verses six and seven tells us that that's not all that happened either. Look at verse six and seven. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's something very important that's happening in verse 6 that you might be able to see it. There's a, a, a Trinitarian nature working out in verse 6. Do you see it? Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The, the Godhead's involved here. This isn't just a Jesus work. This isn't just a Father work or a Spirit work. God is at work. All three persons of the Godhead are involved here. So not only did, did God send Jesus to redeem and adopt, but also he sent his Spirit. His Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, said here, to live in us. One commentator writes that God came down from where he was to where we were, that he might lift us where we were to where he is eternally. Isn't that a picture of what Jesus did? Isn't that what he did at Christmas? But as we think about what he did, we must again consider the cost of redemption, the cost of salvation, the cost to the Son of God that makes us sons of God. He left heaven. He became a man. He lived the perfect life. He endured the cross. He was separated from the Father. He tasted death and hell for us and rose victorious. The Christmas story is not intended, Paul Tripp writes this, the, the Christmas story is not intended to teach you a bunch of moral lessons that require no history to be helpful. It's a story that is rooted in real history, real acts of God that are intended to provide you and me the one thing we desperately need, moral rescue. The Christmas story is about God, the God of glory, a God of glorious grace on the march, invading human history with the grace of redemption. What was the cost of that grace? Well, the price was the death of his son. What the birth of Jesus tells us is that in love, both the father and the son were willing. This from commentator Norman 
Bartlett, if God sacrificed his son for our sins, why are so many of us reluctant to sacrifice our sins for his son? It's not until we understand the cost of grace, the grace that saves, that we'll joyfully renounce our sins and walk in obedience. Until we get grace, right? until we understand grace more clearly. J.I. Packer writes this in his book called Knowing God. Those who suppose that the doctrine of God's grace tends to moral laxivity, which means once I, I, I get grace, I can do whatever I want. Those who suppose that, he says, are simply showing that in the most literal sense, they don't know what they're talking about. For love awakens love in return. And love, once awakened, desires to give pleasure. J.I. Packard is saying, if we've actually experienced God's grace and his love, the response is that we will love him in return. The response is that the way you live your life will, will show that you've experienced that. But our, our lack of love is an indication that we haven't experienced the love of God. There's many people running around saying, saying they know God or they believe in God, and yet there's no evidence of their life. There's no evidence that they love God because they don't actually love anyone. The evidence that we've experienced God's love is that love is awakened in us. Christmas tells us that God's love for the world has come. His grace was shown to man, and his redemption is for sinners. So how will you respond to the good news? Right? The good news that the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. What is the response? May the blessings of being a child of God never make us forget the sacrifice it required. May this Christmas find us obedient to God, thankful, rejoicing, celebrating the reason for Christmas. That is our redemption. And may we be ready, even this week, to share with others how they can be reconciled to God through this one, through this son who was given, through the son who was sent for you and for me. Would you pray with me? And Father, we give thanks. We give thanks for the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're thankful for your love for us, that you would send your son. We're thankful for the willingness of the son to come and to suffer and to die. We rejoice in the peace that we have with you through him. And we celebrate this season. We celebrate even this day, the birth of Jesus, the redemption he brought for sinners like us. And God, would you give us opportunity this week to share that good news? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
smile.